This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Westminster Seminary, California was founded in 1980 primarily to prepare men for pastoral ministry, to preach the law and the gospel, the whole counsel of God, to do the work of an evangelist, to plant churches, to visit the sick, to counsel, to teach Bible studies, catechism, and Sunday school. Since our founding, we've graduated about 1,100 students, most of whom have gone on to do this very work. Dan Warren is one of those. He's from Kansas. He grew up on the mission field in Mexico, and he's a 2017 graduate of Westminster Seminary, California. Unlike most of our graduates, his ministry is not conducted primarily in a local pulpit, but by radio. The Lord has opened a door for him to broadcast the gospel to Cuba as the director of El Faro de Redención, the Lighthouse of Redemption, or Redemption Lighthouse. And since 2016, he has served as a writer for Haven Ministries National English Program. And you can see and hear more about Dan's work on the web at elfaroderedencion.org. That's one word, E-L-F-A-R-O-D-E-R-E-D-E-N-C-I-O-N dot O-R-G. And there are pages in English and Spanish. Hi, Dan, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, since I was born in Kansas, I want to know where in Kansas you were born. I was born in Wichita, Kansas. Oh, I know it very well. It's a beautiful town. And uh, when did you leave Wichita? Well, my family lived in Valley Center, just outside of Wichita, as you know. And I was probably five or six when we moved to the Kansas City area, where my dad was going to pursue training to be a missionary. And how did you find yourself in Mexico? Let me back up a little and tell a little bit of the story. So when I was about three years old, my family began to attend church again. And um, my mom said she was tired of a three-year-old talking her ear off. And so she started going to women's Bible study (laughs) and uh, can't imagine, you know, why she might think that. Mom's day out. (laughs) Exactly. So my dad then saw my mom growing in her faith and saw me coming home singing, you know, Christian songs from Sunday school and the children's care at the Bible study. And he thought, you know, he had professed faith when he was about 13, but really hadn't been walking with the Lord and thought, I need to lead my family. So when I was about three, which is as long as I can remember, I've been in church. It was a little Southern Baptist church and my mom and dad began to grow in their faith there. And my dad really felt the call to be a missionary. So he went and talked to the pastor and the pastor told them that God is a logical God. And so God wouldn't send you to the mission field because you already have a family. And he thought, well, I guess he must know what he's talking about. He's the pastor, but he still felt this call to the mission field. So when I was about five or six, we moved to the Kansas City area where my dad went to Bible college, became an associate pastor at a Baptist church there in Olathe, Kansas. And since 1998, we've served on the mission field in Sinaloa, Mexico as a church planting missions. Okay. And tell us a little bit about where that is. If you go to Tucson, Arizona, and you drive 10 hours straight south, you would end up at my front door. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, you, you, maybe you'll get some guests. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Very good. I'll let and, my family know. All right. Yeah. Give Dan a shout out before you show up in Sinaloa. So you grew up in Mexico. So you are cross-cultural mm-hmm. in your upbringing. How yeah. is that? Well, you know, when I was 12, we moved to Mexico. My sister was about 10 and we didn't go to language school before we moved down. We just learned by immersion. There was a small church there. It was going to be kind of a home base for church planting in that region. And they welcomed us. I remember showing up the first night late at night, but they had uh, grilled chicken prepared for us, invited us over, taught us our first few phrases. You know, my mom and dad had taken a little bit of Spanish, but we knew really nothing. You know, know, hello and where's the bathroom? Those are two things you always (laughs) know, right? And then you don't know where people are sending you. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. 
you know, it was very interesting growing up surrounded by a different culture, a different language. I played guitar, so that was kind of my end to the culture. Even before I could speak Spanish, I started playing Mexican music, you know, with my neighbors and friends from the church. And just really interesting how music is a bridge like that. It's cross-cultural, cross-lingual. It was a great way for me to really develop these deep friendships. But, you know, I think when we first moved there, I was really excited. And then after a couple of years, I thought, man, this is horrible, <laughs> you know? And so I kind of had a rocky period, but... That never happens to missionary kids, No, ever. yeah, no. If you're listening and you're a missionary kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Missions is not glamorous at all. It may seem like it, but it's hard work. Well, you're 12 years old and you're in Kansas City. Mm-hmm, yeah. And now you're in Sinaloa. Right. That's a huge shift at a crucial time in your life. You're a preteen. Exactly. You've got your friends and your games and all the stuff that you're involved in, your social life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now you're uprooted not only to a new place, but a new place where nobody speaks your language. The food is different. The clothing is different. Right. The expectations are different. Yeah. The rules are different. And nobody speaks your language. Exactly. I mean, I was the Kansas boy that used to order a burger if we went to a Mexican restaurant, you know? So <laughs> it was a big culture shift. But are you suggesting there's something wrong with that? Is that <laughs> No, 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 okay. no. That is fine. Yeah, you know. But I think by the time I was uh, in my late teens, I, I really wouldn't have traded it for anything. I developed deep, lasting friendships. I was really introduced to what life is like serving the Lord in a foreign country, a hard context, and was just able to see God's grace working, you know, in my family's ministry and my own ministry, which involved a lot of music, some teaching. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for the world, even as hard as it was. What do you think you learned most importantly living in Sinaloa? What is it that in effect changed your heart and your attitude about it? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, when it comes to my change of heart about feeling welcomed, it was very interesting. And I've been able to apply this, I think, in other areas of life. For a while, you have this situation. It's almost like coming to Reformed Theology. You have this situation where people say, well, what do you do over there? Well, this is how we do things. Well, what do you guys eat? Well, this is what we eat. What do you guys say about this or that? And eventually it becomes, what do they say? And you're actually included, you know, and and you kind of cross this threshold where you're on the outside looking in, wondering about this weird culture. And then you really feel like you're part of the family, you know, and I think spending time with people, being flexible, learning to um, not hold your own cultural preference and ideas of how everything should work, you know, too tightly and actually stepping into another culture and embracing it. That was very valuable, and I had many different applications, I think, later in life. I think as far as spiritually, I think I learned the the value of faithfulness kind of with a long view, you know? And sometimes we want to go in, and we think things are just going to change immediately. There's going to be this radical revival, and everyone's going to come to faith, and... You know, in our instance, we served in this one town for about a year, you know, faithfully every week going out, preaching the gospel, going door to door, developing friendships. And I think one person came to faith. It was just a cold, Mm -hmm. you know, cold town that the Lord wasn't moving in. We ended up in another town, maybe 35 minutes the other direction down the road. And the Lord just broke into this one family with the gospel. People came to faith and then their family members came to faith, their sons, their daughters. It was just interesting. That's where the Lord was leading us, even through that long period where we didn't see a lot of fruit. And to this day, that's where my mom and dad serve in this church plant that's growing. It's serving a college that's their local for indigenous peoples all over Mexico. Mm -hmm. They're seeing families um, become closer, united in the gospel, being transformed, not only, you know, rescued from sin, but actually transformed in the way they live with one another, the way they conduct their lives. And it's just an amazing testimony to what the Lord will do in his own time. You mentioned a moment ago that it's, you know, living cross-culturally is a little a bit like becoming reformed. So tell us about that. How did 
did you become reformed? What did that look like for you? Sure. Well, I had been raised in a context where we were taught the doctrines of grace. That was something that, you know, growing up, I was very clear on through some homeschool materials that were on the other side of the spectrum. I was a little confused about some things at one point, but, you know, my dad worked through those things with me. And I'm thankful to have been raised with an understanding of the doctrines of grace, of the authority, sufficiency, inerrancy of scripture, all of these, you know, crucial things. But I was coming out of a background that didn't really see the unity of scripture in a covenantal view like I see it now. So I think that when you're coming to an understanding of the Bible that's just radically different, it's a paradigm shift. At first, you're kind of asking questions. And I heard this from, you know, I did this and other students have come through Westminster. They say, well, what do you guys think about such and such? What does Reformed Christianity say about this or that? And eventually, sometimes it's this radical moment where you just know you're converted, you know, quote unquote. Other times it just happens gradually where you start feeling that this is the truth and this is where God has brought you. And you start saying, well, what do we say about this or that? Hmm. I guess that's the comparison I was trying to make. And so it happened almost imperceptibly in some ways, just over time, gradually you realize that your paradigm had changed and that you were seeing things, connections in scripture that you hadn't seen before. Yeah, it was toward the end of college. I was studying a biblical counseling degree at the master's college, and I appreciated my time there, learned so much. But there were just little pieces, little cracks in the system, so to speak, that just didn't quite answer the questions I had. And so I graduated from college, went off to Kansas, worked in a factory, air filtration products. And the beauty of that was I was able to work for 10 hours a day listening to whatever I could get my hands on on my MP3 player until OSHA you know, told us we couldn't do that anymore because <laughs> we might get our headphones tangled up or whatnot. Uh -huh. So I used to load up my iPod with anything I get my hands on from you know, monergism, gospel coalition, churches I knew were reformed, and just listen to anything and everything. And I think just slowly it became clear to me that the questions that I had were most clearly answered by a covenantal reform view of Scripture. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to 2017 graduate of Westminster Seminary, California, Dan Warren, about his radio outreach to Cuba. How did you decide that not only am I reformed, but I want to be in ministry in some way? Well, the call to ministry, I think, happened for me in college. I went and originally started as a music major. I started my studies as a music major, and I quickly realized that I was just a Mexican guitar picker that knew nothing about music <laughs> theory. And these other people had been studying theory since they were you know, three years old or, or yeah. whatever. So I quickly fell behind, and a gracious friend of mine drug me through music theory one, and I just said, this isn't for me. I always felt very comfortable with a guitar in front of me. You know, Public speaking made me a little more nervous. I did a little bit of it growing up, but mostly I led music. And and uh, I realized that I wasn't cut out to be a classical musician, and that's what I was really being trained for. So I thought, well, how can I go ahead and serve the Lord in this area and still study something that would be beneficial to the church? So maybe I could help in this area of ministry, but be a counselor. So I switched to biblical counseling. And it's fascinating. My first class, Introduction to Biblical Counseling, the very first lecture was all about how counseling at its heart is worship. And it's about worship and the issues surrounding what our hearts are really leaning after. So here I went to college thinking, oh, I'll study music to be a worship leader. And I find out I'm studying worship, aka biblical counseling. So during my time in college, I still resisted that call to full-time, you know, public speaking, maybe preaching ministry. I felt a call to be in some sort of pastoral ministry. And toward the end of college, I felt that the Lord might be calling me in that direction. So I just remember one time finally just praying to the Lord, hey, you know, I, I don't know what you're calling me to do 
exactly. I think you're calling me to full-time pastoral ministry, which involved preaching and everything. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and pursue that because I think that's what I'm being called to, but just close the doors if that's not what you want me to do. You know, just don't let it happen. Lead me in another direction. Right after that, I had all of these opportunities just to speak, you know, and it's like, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? You know, from speaking <laughs> to chapel with you know more people than I'd ever stood in front of, my knees were knocking, um, going down to Mexico, speaking, you know, my dad's church. So just really interesting how the Lord kind of confirmed that as I went ahead and yielded to that thing that was really scary for me, but it was the direction the Lord was leading me in. And how did you find yourself from L.A. to Kansas and back in Escondido at Westminster Seminary, California? Well, I had a classmate in college, Ronnie Kerfman, who's a graduate uh, here from Westminster. And we had kept in touch. He had kind of gone down the reformed covenant route, you know, before I had and traveled out to Covenant Seminary. And which is close to, you know, Kansas City. So I thought, hey, maybe I'll follow him there. Then he kind of switched gears and ended up at Westminster, California. So in talking with him, he really encouraged me to come out and visit the seminary. I did, came out with my wife. She was thrilled. My wife is from Sonora, Mexico originally. And she was thrilled that Escondido had such a high Hispanic population. After being in a small town in Kansas where she was the only, you know, not white person, it was incredible for her just to be kind of at home. And we came and visited the seminary. I sat in on BTNC, which just blew my mind. That's the course, Biblical Theology and Canon. Right, right. That's our acronyms. My wife says we have too many of in English. <laughs> I went out to lunch with Dr. Johnson. And any of you who know Dr. Johnson know that he's just the sweetest man and such a godly example. And talking with him, he was very gracious. You know, thinking back, I was probably so jumbled in my thoughts about theology and where I thought it was going. And he just really, you know, graciously guided me toward some really good answers. And I thought, you know, this is the kind of person I want to study under. So I went back to Kansas. I remember sitting out in my backyard, the hot summer and under some shade in the backyard and reading his book, Him We Proclaim, which is a book all about the apostolic hermeneutic and how we see Christ in all of scripture. And I think my transition to a more robust reformed theology really started with understanding that all of scripture speaks of Christ. After reading that book and just really devouring it over that summer, I thought, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going to end up theologically, but I know this is where I want to study because I want to learn how to do that. And so that's really what brought us back out to Westminster. And how was it? Did you get what you came for? Absolutely. I got more than I even expected because I thought when I came to Westminster that, you know, of course, I'd learn the languages, I'd learn theology, but, you know, my mindset was I just want to learn how to preach Christ. But then what I came to discover is that, you know, those long, hard hours studying Hebrew and learning the paradigms in Greek and wrapping my mind around certain systematic things, all of that is in service of preaching law and gospel, of preaching Christ week in and week out and showing people the life-giving power of grace from Scripture. I couldn't have asked for a better training for what I'm doing now because I think walking away from seminary, you learn how much you don't know yet, but you have a great foundation to go to the scriptures and really from the original languages up, working out the hermeneutics and the grammar and how it pieces together systematically and really to carry that into the pulpit and to share with people what this story, what this text, passage, wherever you're at in scripture, how does it point us to Christ and his grace? And while you were here, you began writing for Haven Ministries. Yes. So tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about that. Yeah, I was contacted by a friend of mine, another classmate here at Westminster, Adrian Crum, who's an OPC minister in the Bay Area now. And he was 
moving on to this call and looking for someone to take his place at Haven. And he had told me he worked for Haven before and the name really didn't register. And then when I started looking at the website, getting to know the ministry more when he you know, approached me about this job, I realized this is Haven of Rest. And I remember hearing the quartet on the radio when I was a kid in Kansas City, You know, hearing the I anchor my soul in the Haven of Rest. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's what this is. So I started writing for the English side of the ministry in 2016. It was my last year in seminary and made for a very busy last year in seminary, but it was so great to be taking what I was learning in class and what I learned over, you know, three years at this point of solid teaching from scripture and really distilling that, packaging it, writing it for a broad audience, someone who would probably never be listening to office hours, but to be able to take this truth of Christ, his grace, grace being the foundation for everything we do, the law and the gospel and distilling that, writing it for a broad audience. And it was just a really good exercise for me and a blessing to work with the team at Haven. I couldn't be more pleased with, with the time I've spent with them. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of our new residential village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. So it's interesting that you ended up, after seminary, being involved in this outreach to Cuba. And Mm -hmm. I want to get to Mm -hmm. that because that's important. Have you felt, or did you feel, when you came back to the States to study, sort of disconnected from Mexico and from your experience there? Or was being here enough like your experience, after all, we're only 40 miles from Tijuana, that Mm -hmm. you were able to sort of get enough of what you'd become used to. Yeah, you know, that's very interesting. I've lived at this point longer back in the States than I did in Mexico. And there's definitely a disconnect because you're just not surrounded by the culture. My wife and I discussed this. It's so easy to become complacent. I'm not trying to be too negative. You know, it's not like it's better to live in one place than the other, but it's just easy to get comfortable, disconnected from just the way of life. And, you know, we wonder about that. Have we become a little too comfortable? But being in Escondido, I had the opportunity to work a little bit in the Hispanic community. There's Juan Arjona, a graduate of the seminary, who's planting a Hispanic church here in Escondido. And I've had the opportunity to get to know him and preach some in his church and get to know his congregation. But I really kind of uh, got a little rusty with my Spanish connections, which makes this ministry to Cuba very interesting. Well, you need to come to my neighborhood. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) Right? Because it's not difficult. If you want to speak Spanish in Escondido, it's not difficult. No, it's not at all. If you're looking for 
Mexican food. This is a ground zero <laughs> for a lot of San Diego County. So, That's right. Uh, but it's also very multicultural. Mm -hmm. And while you were mm -hmm. here as a student, you were studying with people from all over the place. So some people with Hispanic backgrounds, mm -hmm. uh, lots of folks with Anglo backgrounds, but also African backgrounds, Asian backgrounds. How did that affect you as a student, having that multicultural experience? Oh, I thought it was wonderful. And it really reminded me of my time in college. I had been so immersed in the international community. And then I, you know, went back to Kansas and I was in a small town where uh, it's pretty monocultural. Where in Kansas? I was in Ottawa, Kansas. Oh, I know it well. In Ottawa, Kansas, where there's Ottawa University. North, you have Olathe toward one end and Lawrence going the other direction. Coming back to California and getting here to Westminster, I was pleasantly surprised with how international the student body was. And I think it's even growing more international year after year. I think that's so important because we can become so culturally set in the way we think about theology, the way we think about scripture. It's not that scripture changes from culture to culture, but just having a different set of eyes, looking at things from a little bit different perspective, sharpening one another in that way is an incredible experience. And the Reformed faith is a multicultural, multinational confession and faith, right? Mm -hmm. It's been practiced in Europe. It's been practiced in Africa. It's been practiced and uh, followed in South Korea, mm -hmm. in the Spanish-speaking world, not to the degree that we would like, but there is a foothold. So sure. may maybe talk to us a little bit about the place of Reformed theology in the Spanish-speaking world, because that's predominantly a Roman Catholic culture, at least as we think about the religion. Spain itself is a secular European nation to a large degree. Mexico, a little more mixed, maybe. You know, it's very interesting having grown up surrounded by Roman Catholicism and even having grown up in a church context that taught to some degree Reformed theology with the doctrines of grace and so many points of agreement. Yet even still, when I thought of Presbyterians, I thought they probably got together and, you know, they're, the guy leading the Presbytery had a little hat like the Pope and <laughs> I had no clue, you know, and it was, it was fascinating to me sitting in church history classes, realizing <laughs> these are the folks that actually brought back the gospel by going back to the original languages, going Going back to what the fathers had taught and really recovering this true understanding of the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And I think that's really important for people in a Latin American context to see. You know, I think that because of infant baptism and there are different points, perhaps sometimes in the culture of the church and the dress of the clergy, it might seem to someone who's come out of Rome to be a little Roman. But once you dig into the theology and see that it's based on mere tradition, but it's based on the word of God, I think that that carries very well into that. Culture. And so now you have this marvelous radio ministry that's broadcasting the gospel to Cuba. So tell us about that. Sure. So Haven Ministries has been involved in ministry to Cuba for the last couple, three, four years. There's a good friend of the ministry down in Florida who has been trying to get Charles Morris, the president and speaker of Haven today, to come to Cuba and just see what the Lord is doing. And he finally prevailed on him and he went. And Charles has a journalism background, so he likes to just chase the story. What is the Lord doing in this place? You know, I mean, he's done so in the Middle East and finally was able to go to Cuba. And what he found is the church is thriving. It's really remarkable. It's a totally different church landscape in many ways than you have in the United States. Even when someone says, I'm such and such denomination, that may mean something totally different. And we could mention a few things that are interesting there, but Charles was just really excited and brought that passion back to the ministry and said, what can we do to help Cuba? And what we found was that there was a shortage of Bibles. Back when, well, there was a time in Cuba called the Periodo Especial, the special period. Everyone refers to that time as the special period and Bibles became very, very scarce. But 
as of 1992, the Constitution of Cuba has actually opened up as a secular state and no longer prohibits the free practice of religion. Now, of course, there's some limits, but the church has just boomed under that new freedom. Many of the people who hung on through that special period prayed for this time to come. They prayed for revival. They prayed for you know the light at the end of the tunnel, and many of them never saw it. But now Cuba is really reaping the fruits of those prayers. The official estimates are that there's a million Roman Catholics, a million Protestants in attendance at church Sunday mornings. How many people in Cuba altogether? 11 and a half million. All right. So that's a sizable percentage given the modern history. Right. Exactly. And by all accounts, those are very hard numbers to nail down. It's very likely that that Protestant number has boomed way beyond that just because of the house church movements and just how the Lord is moving. So back to Haven Ministries involvement, Charles decided to lead us in this campaign, this call to action for 10,000 Bibles, if we could raise it, if our listeners would maybe be able to send 10,000 Bibles. And today, three years after that initial call, we raised about 200,000 Bibles to be sent to Cuba, which is just remarkable. But so many other ministries are involved in sending Bibles. We thought, what's the next step? How can we do what we do best in Cuba? And that's radio. Haven Ministries is an 84-year-old radio ministry, the longest continuous daily program in the United States. And we're in Southern California. We've never done anything in Spanish, which we thought that just can't be. <laughs> it's time to do something in Spanish. And the Lord has given us these opportunities in Cuba. However, it's not allowed to broadcast from within Cuba. We were racking our brains about how to do it. You know, the board was thinking about it. Some of the board members had traveled to Cuba and it's just one of those nuts you can't crack. Charles just happened to mention this to Lauren Libby, the president of Transworld Radio. And he said, well, that's very interesting, Charles, because we've been reaching Cuba for maybe a couple of decades, broadcasting out of Bonaire, which is one of the Dutch Antilles, the ABC Islands, Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire. And because of what the Lord's doing in Cuba, Transworld Radio had decided to step out in faith and purchase a million dollar new transmitter, taking it from 100,000 watts to 450,000 watts. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. This is Office Hours, and we're talking to Dan Warren, a 2017 graduate of Westminster Seminary, California, about his radio broadcast to Cuba. Just so the listener understands, not to get too far into Just the so weeks, I can understand, because I'm learning this too. That is an unthinkable number of watts. You're an AM station in a given city. There'll be one or two 50,000-watt stations that are meant to cover a large area. Those are called clear channel stations. These are AM stations. And so 100,000 watts used to exist in Mexico. I don't know if it does anymore. I don't believe so. And 400,000 watts is beyond you know one's ability to imagine. So <laughs> you, you, that's an enormously powerful transmitter. To put it in perspective, once we went live February 5th, I was driving home from Riverside, California and passing Temecula. I tuned in our program from Bonaire <laughs> off the coast of Venezuela. Exactly. So It was very hard to make out. There is kind of an overlapping station from Baja, but it's there. If you're near the tower when they power up the uh, transmitter and you want to roast something, <laughs> you can do that. And if your cattle are nearby, they will dry up. So <laughs> that, that's an amazing transmitter. Well, what an opportunity to be broadcasting the gospel in Spanish mm-hmm. to Cuba. Mm -hmm. And you are getting response. I follow you on uh, at least one social media platform, that's Instagram, where you've been posting photographs Mm -hmm. of an amazing meeting that you had where you said a thousand people gathered. Am I remembering that correctly? Right. It was in Jovellanos, Cuba. It was the day after we arrived, Sunday night. I had prepared to preach on 2 Samuel 9 and the story of Mephibosheth, which is just a, you know, beeline for the gospel. And we didn't know how many people would come. We actually thought there would be 
be maybe 800 people or so. That's what they had calculated for Bibles. They had to go get another shipment of Bibles during the service because too many people showed up. The pastor's wife told me that the deacons were going to count and see how many people were there during the service. And afterwards I asked her, well, you know, how many people were there? She just threw her hands up in the air. They couldn't count. Um, But judging by how many Bibles were passed out, considering that some people probably take more than one, we think there was about 1,200 people there in attendance. An amazing story that night. There were these, for lack of a better word, dump trucks that had been converted into passenger vehicles. This Methodist pastor had loaded up many members from his congregation, neighbors, friends, some other people from other churches, and they drove an hour and a half on these horrible Cuban roads in a vehicle that has no shocks loaded in the back to receive their first copy of God's word. That was just really moving to see what lengths someone will go to to obtain a copy of Scripture. Think about the average Christian home and how many Bibles of various translations and sure. quality and so forth are sitting around on a shelf. Or, mm-hmm. And then, you know, here you and I have electronics here. I've got multiple Bibles on my phone. I've got multiple Bibles on my iPad and my computer. And these folks are just now getting their own copy of Scripture in Spanish. And to get those copies, they're climbing into the back of an old dump truck. Right. The first year that Haven went to Cuba, there was an evening in another town where it was late. The team was getting hungry, a little testy. There was murmuring in the camp, we could say. (laughs) And and Charles went and spoke with Dopico, the head of the Council of Churches, that is kind of our conduit into so many different contexts in Cuba, and said, why don't we just leave the Bibles here? People can distribute them later. And he started to weep. So Charles said, oh, no, don't don't, don't start crying. We'll, We'll stay. Right then, he sees two of these dump truck kind of vehicles start approaching. And then some little horse-drawn carts. And then people walking in from the villages. There was the same amount of people that night, twelve to 1,500 people. They couldn't fit into the church building. It was only half covered with sheet metal. The sheet metal roof only half covered this building. And it was overflowing out into the yard. It started pouring rain. Nobody left. Mm -hmm. They stayed for the sermon. They stayed for their copy of Scripture. And there was dancing down the aisles, just receiving this first copy of the Bible. Well, that's extraordinary. And are you getting, now that the broadcast is going and people are picking it up, on radios, are you getting feedback from them? We are getting feedback. As you might know, Cuba is still catching up when it comes to the internet age. So it's slow, it's trickling in, but I've started receiving reports from different parts of the island where people are tuning in the program. Somebody told me they listened to it on MW, which I didn't know what that was, but I guess it's medium wave, Mm, something between AM and FM. They don't even have really the updated resources sometimes to listen to it, but they're finding a way. And most Cubans have access to email. So I'm starting to get email reports. One interesting story I should tell you, there's this pastor in uh, Consolacion del Sur, Southern Comforts, name of the town. And I wanted to interview him in front of his church. There's a little plaque that says 1909 to 2009. So it's a little dated. 100 years preaching Jesus Christ. I just want to ask him, what does that mean? So I'm interviewing him and he's just passionate, an Afro-Cuban, just really passionate about the gospel. And I started thinking, this guy, he knows his stuff. And I asked him, what would you say to a pastor who's discouraged? He feels a little alone. He wants to regain that passion for preaching God's word. And I think later I found out I was actually describing him. He's passionate, but he feels alone out in the far west of Cuba. And he tells me that he thinks we should always, those of us who preach the word, should take some time and get alone read scripture, be refreshed. You know, we should preach, but we also need to remember the scripture is to refresh our souls. And he said, 
I think we need to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And when he said that, I thought, I don't know, but I think this guy's reformed. (laughs) So after the interview, I asked him just to kind of see where he was coming from. I said, you know, do you go to seminary somewhere? Where did you study? He said he travels six hours east to go to Reformed Baptist Seminary because it's the clearest teaching he can find. And when I told him, uh, I said, well, I'm a Presbyterian, not a liberal Presbyterian, but from a conservative Presbyterian denomination in the States. I just graduated from Westminster in May. His eyes got as big as saucers. He knew the name Westminster and he was excited about it. He sent me a long email later just thanking me for coming out and spending time with the pastors there. I had a chance with this group of pastors and leaders to just talk to them about how we should preach Christ from all the scripture, how preaching Christ is preaching grace, which is something I think I learned from Dr. Johnson on day one. And he had already noticed that these guys are reformed when he was sitting in the back listening to this. So he thanked me. He said, you know, he holds to the reformed faith and it's Baptist expression and he really wants to continue a relationship, which is something I'm excited about when it comes to the feed feedback from this program. I mean, our mainstay is going to be preaching Christ Monday through Friday with the gospel, but we can also develop these relationships with Cuban pastors so that we can encourage them, go in on trips, maybe take others to come in and help continue the revival and reform that's happening in the country. Why is it so important for Cuba to be hearing the gospel? And why is it so important, as you keep saying, for you through this broadcast to be preaching Christ? Well, something we don't want to communicate is that the gospel isn't being preached in Cuba, because it certainly is. We say every day on the program that we want to shine the light of Christ from all of Scripture for all of Cuba. And our mission statement is to edify the Cuban church, encourage faithful Cuban pastors and leaders who are preaching the gospel, and to evangelize the lost in Cuba. We really see ourselves as coming alongside the church in Cuba, the pastors who are already faithfully doing this, and just helping them. I mean, if you just were able to see how how long it takes to get from Havana to a town that might take us three hours away. I think the fastest we drove on this last trip I went down was 55 miles an hour between towns on slow, bad roads, once over a very sketchy bridge, which is another story for another time. Uh, I think I saw a picture of yeah, that on Instagram. Yeah. Um, somebody said it was not a bridge, but termites holding hands. But anyway, we want to be a resource. We want to be an encouragement to the Cuban church. And something that I've heard from many other friends who do ministry in Cuba is that there's a lot of moralistic sermons being preached. Sometimes I call them Scooby-Doo sermons because it's just Scooby-Dooby-Dooey, do more, be more, do more, be more. And we want to preach what Christ has already done. And we want to explain that fact and hopefully encourage pastors and kind of cast a vision for preaching Christ and His grace and not just how to be better and do better. I mean, it's really the long gospel, right? Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.